Mixed indicators from the economy. Mixed signals from the Fed. Potential big news in a retail bankruptcy. Welcome to Episode 4 of Season 2 of The Retail Grind. And I'm here with Garrick Brown on this Episode 4 of Season 2 of The Retail Grind. Garrick, how you been? Bill, been doing really good. Just uh, trying to, you know, stay on top of the fall speaking season. Suddenly I'm... uh, I'm traveling and I'll, probably the most I've, I've been able to travel since before COVID. So it's, it's nice to see things getting back to normal. The hard part is getting myself back to normal. <laughs> you know, travel, travel takes a lot out of you, as you, I'm sure, are very well aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to, got to be very careful with the energy and all this stuff floating around. Well, you've been floating around. Where have you been lately? You talk about you've been on the road. I, I follow you from afar when we're not on this uh, podcast. Where you been? Well, mostly some private client stuff, uh, Chicago, uh, Portland, Oregon, and uh, Las Vegas. But I'm about to, a uh, couple days, this, this coming Thursday, which will be, uh, I believe, the 22nd of September, I'm going to be uh, speaking at the National Crew Convention uh, in Atlanta. I'll be there Thursday and Friday. And then I'm uh, you know, just hitting Atlanta a lot of... Uh, the ICSE Southeast uh, Conference, which is next month, I believe it's October 22nd. Um, I might be wrong on that, but um, I'll be back in Atlanta and, and um, speaking again. Uh, for crew, I'm going to be talking about uh, the retail opportunities the next 25 years. And for ICSE, I'm going to be talking about uh, the changes you can expect from the Gen Z, and uh, you know, now it's it never stops. The, the next generation after that, the Gen Alphas, which uh, are starting to enter their teenage years, and ten years from now will be where Gen Z is. So, so doing doing a lot and um, trying to finish off our annual um, retail expansion uh, guide, which is just turning into a beast. It's the the growth plans of at this point of about 5,000 chains throughout the U.S. and Canada. So been doing a lot, uh, been really busy. Great stuff. Well, for our audience out there, check out Garrick, follow him on his LinkedIn or follow him online. And we'll, we'll definitely, uh, and, and when you see these episodes get posted, dig a little deeper and see where Garrick's been. And for on my end, Garrick, we've got, and you'll be with me up in Schaumburg, well, actually, later this week, we're going to be up in Toronto for our Canada Mid-Year Conference, but then October 9th through 11th would be at Schaumburg, the Renaissance Schaumburg Convention Center for the Mid-Year Conference for Connects FM. It's a tech-focused mid-year. Garrick and I will be there. Garrick is going to be gathering some industry in- interviews as well uh, as we continue on this uh, second season of the Retail Grind. In addition to the Mid-Year, I know that Garrick has uh, some real cool guests who we'll talk about in the coming weeks. So, enough off the top, Garrick. Let's uh, dig in. There's always interesting stuff going on. We'll do this episode in two parts. You're the star. First half, why don't we talk a little bit? It seems like we might have achieved at least somewhat of that soft landing you were talking about last October at one of our meetings. And and since then, overall, what is the economic outlook? So here's the interesting thing, because I think we're getting to the point in in this, you know, proverbial soft landing 
where the bumpiness hits. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, I've, I've said for a while that uh, a soft landing, it's not necessarily going to be all that soft as a landing. Picture, picture a jet that uh, the landing gear is screwed up and it manages to land except it skids across the runway with sparks and flames shooting out, but nobody dies. Um, I kind of feel like that's where we're about to be. Except that it's it's going to feel a little bit more challenging. So, so the reason I, I bring this up is consumer spending is what's really kept everything afloat, uh, and and consumers have continued to show up months after every economist out there was looking at at it, just saying, "All right, the impacts of inflation." Uh, they're going to draw back. They're going to draw back sharper. And what's happened is they've drawn back a little bit. But, you know, the latest retail sales data came out uh, about five days ago. Most economists were anticipating somewhere like a 0.2% to 0.4% increase. Well, they were still up 0.6%. Um, now, that that being said, if you really dig in category by category, what drove it largely was this massive surge in gas prices that that really kicked in towards the end of summer, and it's still playing out. So suddenly, you know, you've got um, you know just in the last week, for example, the the national unleaded price of of gas is the average is three eighty six. That's a that's up over five cents from just a week, and and it's been jumping like that really the last five weeks. So. Gas prices kind of inflated the retail sales data. If the gas prices had stayed the same, retail sales would not have been negative, but they would have been flat. And the reason we're all anticipating this, uh, anybody with economics background, is simply put, Americans have been racking up more and more credit card debt, and they've also been dipping into that savings slush fund that really swelled up during COVID. You know, initially it was panic saving at the front end where suddenly uh, Americans went from a typical savings rate of say 6% of their income to 33%. And then when you had the disbursement of all the federal payments, those numbers stayed really large. Now, that being said, what used to be a six trillion extra surplus in American bank accounts that, that would be what you would measure, say, at the end of 2020 compared to one year before, that stayed in place for a couple of years. Now it's down to four trillion. And if you adjust it out for inflation, it's lower than that. So we're working through that money. And then so the question becomes, <clears throat> when do the consumers not show up? Enough so that, you know, Deloitte came out with their projections for the holiday shopping season. And what they're saying is they're seeing a 3.5% year over year growth, which would be the lowest growth rate since pre-COVID. Ironically, 3.5% in the late teens was, was considered pretty good, you know, but they see it dropping off. They also see the uh, retail hiring this year. And this is something I definitely agree with. It's going to be at its lowest level since 20, uh, 2008, which was a great recession and pretty bleak, which some of it, some of it's simply about automation and all of the ways that in the last 13, 14, 15 years that retailers have become more productive with their workforce using technologies that are available. 
Some of it for sure is that retailers are very weary and it's a tough time for retailers right now because we've gone through these months of you're waiting for the shoe to drop with the consumer and then instead of the R word we're all waiting for, recession, it's just resilience. Sooner or later it's going to happen and does that finally, is that where the rubber meets the road and we're finally in a, a downturn? I'm not so sure it is. Uh, you know, I just think it's going to come back to earth further. And eventually, I do think we're going to have some negative months as far as retail sales year over year and month over month. Um, we haven't had that year over year thing happen yet. But I also think it's going to be brief. And I'm not sold it's going to be a recession at this point. I, I'm, I'm still sticking with the idea that what we've experienced in the last couple of years have been rolling recessions limited to certain industries, but never enough all at once across multiple sectors to drive the overall economy there. Um, and certainly, we still see that. Real estate is hurting right now, commercial real estate particularly. But just think about the dichotomy of where we're at today, okay? Because four or five years back, it was all about offices being full and malls being empty, and it's completely reversed itself. I mean, completely. Um, we'll get into this a little bit more, I think, on the retail sector. But, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of things that I look at that I think, you know, it's only going to strengthen the retail brick and mortar space, even though we've got a couple large bankruptcies that have happened in the last couple of weeks. We've got a giant one that's looming. Yet at the bottom of all this, there's a couple of different categories of retail that are set to surge regardless of what happens with the American consumer, so long as there isn't some sort of black swan event where we completely goes off the cliff. So all that being said, you know, um, I've given up on trying to predict what uh, consumers are going to do. The consumer sentiment uh, numbers, whenever they go down, it hasn't seemed to change their spending. Um, and there's certain things that even with what would normally be considered soft retail growth numbers, there's certain categories that are still killing it. Most, most prominently, food and beverage, dining out, which that's always been the canary in the coal mine for recessions is the first thing people pull back on are those discretionary expenditures going out and treating themselves. They have not done that, not at all, um, throughout this whole, we're, this whole last year where other categories were coming back to earth from double digit annual growth, like Furniture, furnishing, sporting goods, uh, all, all, of, all of those different categories that are now in this low single digits. We're still seeing year over year restaurant, you know, food and beverage sales growth in the five to eight percent range. And that's pretty astounding. And I think it, it does kind of tip, tip your, uh, tip the consumer's hand to where they're thinking, because I really do think that we would see a pullback if things were a little bit more dire and they're not, it's just kind of lackluster. Interesting. You know, we run into this even in the association space and maybe you can talk about, and you hint at it a lot. Isn't part of the challenge right now comparing year over year or a couple years? Cause each of these since 2019, it seems like each year has been so unique in the dynamics. And now Next year, we're into an election year <laughs> with the economy. Yep. So what are your thoughts on how do you do that? So you um, make your make your money, right, on, a, on comparing eras, comparing year-over-year year statistics. But what if next year is expected to be so different than 
this year and the year before. How do you do that, Gary? Well, you know, the first couple of years of the pandemic, I was very big on not looking at year over year so much as looking back to 2019 because mm -hmm. that was our last norm mm -hmm. or uh, accepted norm. And, and one of the challenges we're in today is that I'm still not sure that a norm has emerged. Mm -hmm. You know, I almost feel like um, until that that backlog, that overhang of cash that was in Americans' bank accounts was worked through, that, that figuring out what the normal uh, the normal behavior of consumers was going to be is was challenging. And then you throw in a couple of things on top of it, and like you said, we have not found normal yet. Three years out from the pandemic, but. Just something like looking at um, Americans spending on groceries uh, versus eating out. You know, groceries have come back to earth. Now, part of that has been the grocery stores have passed inflation on way more than restaurants have. Hmm. So if, if, if you're a young couple, there's a really good chance, especially if you're going to QSRs, fast casuals, or, or below, or just straight up fast food, you're probably eating meals out for the same price that you'd make them a home, maybe not the same uh, nutritional quality, but <laughs> that is a real challenge. And, and it's, it's something that the restaurant industry has really struggled with because, you know, their consumers react much more quickly uh, when, when prices are raised, but, you know, we've seen it across the board. I mean, uh, I don't know when the last time you've been to a McDonald's drive-in has been bill, but um, you know, 10 bucks for a, a combo meal yeah. is kind of par for the course nowadays. And it wasn't that long ago that it was five or six bucks. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, um, and you hinted at it in your update, a lot going on in the retail economy and retail space. And so we're going to take a quick break and then come back to, to where, uh, you know, the, the real strike zone for Garrick here is he's going to talk to us about what he is seeing out in the commercial real estate and with specifically the retail economic space in a moment. We'll be right back. And we're back. We just had our update on what's happening in the economy overall. Garrick, what are you seeing more specifically in our retail space? Well, I'm going to start with the bad news. Um, you know, the bad news in the last couple of weeks, we saw the uh, very cool furniture concept um, that out of North Carolina go down, and that would be uh, Mitchell Gold. And that's about 30 stores that are closing for good. Uh, no news on precisely what went wrong, but I think the writing is kind of on the wall. If you do look at those furniture and furnishings numbers, those con consumer sales, the fact of the matter is, is when everybody was at home, people went on a furniture and furnishings spending spree. Yep. And then that really fell off a cliff about 18 months ago. And the problem with anytime consumers go on a spending spree for large furniture items, furnishings, or um, even appliances is that those are usually not items that they need every other year or so. And so they had the dry spell. Uh, now, on top of that, we had the bedding and linen, and linen concept, soft surroundings, filed Chapter 11 uh, just last week. They've got also about 30 stores. And they're doing Chapter 11. They will reorganize and they will become an online-only brand. But they're going to close all their stores. So that's bad news. 
But the big one we're all waiting for, hands down, uh, this has been out there for about two weeks that Rite Aid was almost certainly going to be filing bankruptcy. And the, the reason why is they, they hired bankruptcy counsel and bankruptcy financial advisors. And really, since late August, they've been quietly closing stores left and right. Um, certainly across the U.S., I know of at least 30 locations that have closed. And, and I'm hearing from people that uh, it's kind of under the radar because they haven't filed yet. I, I do think they're probably going to file this week. Plus, uh, up in the Pacific Northwest, there is a chain that they bought a few years ago called Bartels Drugs. They've closed at least eight of those in the last six months, and they've really ramped that up. But the irony of Rite Aid's filing, uh, to me, is what strikes me. Because Rite Aid, my entire career has been spent with Rite Aid on a bankruptcy watch list. <laughs> my entire career, going back to the late 90s. Wow. And... They never filed. Now, I don't want to get too much into the ethics of bankruptcy or not bankrupt, et cetera. It's just that in, Amer in corporate America, if you had the balance book that they had, at certain times, it would have behooved them to do a reorganization of their debt. And yes, they would have probably closed a lot of underperforming stores. That's one of the things you could, you get a benefit of, of retailer going through bankruptcy is you can kick out leases of stores that aren't performing the way you wanted them to and get out of them. They never did it. Now, here's the thing about Rite Aid is that why were they on bankruptcy watch lists for so long? Going back, you know, they were founded in the early 60s. By the time they got to the 80s, they were one of the fastest growing chains, mostly through acquisition. They were buying up competitors and back then, that was before we had a three-horse race for drugstores in the United States. It was you know, before the, the dominance of Walgreens, Walgreens, CVS, or Rite Aid. You had a lot of regional chains. They were first out there, gobbling them up. All that was good. The founder eventually steps down and retires. His 30-year-old son comes in. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, I don't want... Uh, to get too much into the details, but unfortunately, uh, his, his son, Martin Grass, continued that acquisition spree, but they reached a point by the late 90s where the debt load was exploding. 1996, they made their biggest purchase uh, yet. It was the roughly 1,200-unit thrifty payless chain on the West Coast. Only one problem with that. This At the time, it was a $1.5 billion deal. So if we were talking today's dollars, triple that. But basically, it was financed through short-term borrowing. Uh, and as they got into this crisis, uh, they got into the situation where Martin Grass started playing with the numbers. He was later convicted of fraud and actually sent to prison uh, with an eight-year sentence. He served five years. But when all that happened, that, that Rite Aid leadership was cooking the books in the mid-90s. Uh, you saw their stock price go from over $50 to at one point as low as $0.25 cents a share. I mean, it's amazing that they survived that. They come out of it, new leadership. They are on the bankruptcy watch lists <clears throat> from basically 1997 onward, but they muddled through. And they had some years that were good growth, some years that weren't so good, but they never filed... They're filing now because 
they're about to get hit with opioid lawsuits. Mm. Now, uh, without getting into whether that's right or wrong, I do find it ironic that, uh, you know, according to the CDC, we've dealt with about 650,000 people dying from opioid overdoses between 1999 and 2021. There's been no jail sentences for any of the pharmaceutical manufacturers that were involved in bringing OxyContin to the marketplace, which arguably is what kickstarted it, all under the false claims it was not addictive, um, all of which has been proven. Nobody's gone to jail on this on, on that front, although some lawsuits are up there, and certainly Purdue Pharma uh, is, you know, was hit with a six billion dollar one that's that's going up in front of the Supreme Court because, uh, you know, they're, they're still trying to figure out like you know, nothing's been paid out. Those suits have also hit drugstores and pharmacies. Because in certain cases, and by the way, the only people who have gone to jail in the opioid crisis were the users and some select doctors and drug stores that clearly were running pill mills. The challenge for all of the major drug store players is that they're all getting hit. And Rite Aid, being on that precipice and being on those bankruptcy watch lists, they're ending up going to file to keep their chain alive. Whereas Walgreens and CVS likely will not have to worry about that because they're just in a stronger financial place. But, you know, what does it mean? Well, 2,200 Rite Aid stores across the U.S. When I first looked at this, I was assuming, well, let's let's think worst case, they close a third of their stores. That's 700 drug stores across the U.S. closing down. Rite Aid's heaviest uh, heaviest uh, presence are on both coasts. Um, the state of Pennsylvania and the state of California each account for about 22% of their stores. Okay, so that's that's almost half their stores right there. But if we were dealing with that many stores coming back to market, average size about 14,000 square feet, that's an awful lot of space coming back. However, here's the good news is that that size space is under high demand from just a couple of major players that all want to open 100-plus stores in the next year or mm. two. Uh, everything from Harbor Freight, Grocery Outlet, Tractor Supply, Aldi Little, Trader Joe's, Ulta, Dollar Tree, Michael's Pop Shelf, Five Below. And those are just the big nationals. And what's, what I've gotten feedback from, from a couple of people connected uh, on the inside, is it's probably not going to be 700 stores. In fact, what it looks like is, is there's going to be three waves of closures, one that's already happening. Those are the clearest underperformers. One that will probably happen is they enter bankruptcy once they file, and I'm, I'm still sticking to it's It's almost certain they're going to. You don't, you don't go and hire the, the number of advisors that they have and not file. And that there might be a third way, but it might be looking at three to 400 stores. And, and here's what kind of blew me away about all of this is, is I've spoken to people in the brokerage community. The common response has been, well, I'm sorry to hear that for them. I actually wish it was more stores because we don't have enough product to move. Hmm. And to me, that's an amazing thing that you I, – I can't go back 20 years and say I've ever heard that with any other retailer. The market has become so tight, um, especially 
where drugstores go to, those outdoor drug or grocery anchored centers in your neighborhood. You know, no doubt there are still some malls, Class C malls that are feeling pain and there's still a dead mall story, but even those malls have bounced back. Um, an interesting number came out of uh, some friends of mine at JLL published a report a few days ago that last year, 40% of luxury retailers signing deals in the U.S. did so at U.S. malls. So there's a there's a real revival going on in the mall. So the challenged properties are very few, and it's 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 something I, I I'm still getting my head around after this this giant paradox of three years ago everything was about dead and dying and empty malls and full offices, and now it's completely the opposite. Um, so that's where we're at. Who's going to take that space? Well, obviously, you know, I went through a list of some of these players, and those lists are growing, especially if you can chop up the space. It might be a little bit difficult for Rite Aid. But all of these other concepts that we've seen these bankruptcies from, um, Mitchell Gold, Soft Surroundings, those those are players that often are available, often have their stores at malls or in high street districts. We're going to see a flood of luxury demand next year, and it might sound very strange considering what I was saying in the consumer segment that we're all waiting for consumer sales to kind of continue to drop lower. But here's something to consider: is that most of luxury retail's growth in the last twenty years has been in China, China, India, Middle East. Most Middle Eastern markets, they might be able to support more growth, but a lot of concepts there have kind of achieved uh, market saturation. China, which for the last 20 years has typically averaged GDP growth in the teens, is now down to 3%. And it's looking like the Chinese economy may actually go into recession next year. First time in over 20 years. Which means when we look at the growth landscape for all the luxury brands going into next year, what's most likely going to emerge is that the healthiest economies are going to be in North America. It'll be U.S. and Canada. And most of these brands already are dealing with saturation issues in the Middle East, and they're also dealing with saturation issues at the European brands at home in Europe. So just keep your eye on, on luxury. There's going to be a ton of luxury activity ramping up. And, you know, the one thing is as much as the overall consumer picture matters, the luxury brands, where they lose out when consumer spending is flat, is that aspirational shopper who really isn't part of the, the luxury elite shoppers. They're the middle class player that is going to splurge for that special handbag. Well, their core audience is doing fine. And so you're going to see an explosion of luxury growth next year, Bill. Very interesting stuff. And, and even through uh, or in Connects FM and our membership, I think that rings true and very interesting update as we follow this. Uh, you're going to you're going to lose your reputation for being a pessimist if you keep with all this good news, Garrick. I mean, uh, the last last <laughs> three, four times we've talked, you've been uh, <laughs> all, all good stuff. Well, as we wrap up this uh, very uh, 
brief episode four, head into the autumn. Where are you going to be next, Garrick? Do you have any uh, speaking engagements or any events you want to highlight? Well, Atlanta crew later this week, Atlanta ICSC uh, a month from now, around August 20th, or I mean October 20th. I will also be, although I don't think I'm speaking, uh, I'll be at ICSC the last week uh, in San Diego, the last week of October. And of course, I'll be with you out in Schaumburg at the Connects event in October as well. So, and working on a few things further down the road, but uh, yeah, I, I got to dust off my uh, my carry-on bags, Bill, and uh, get ready for uh, a whole lot of uh, airport uh, airport stays and just hoping that my planes don't get delayed coming home. <laughs> Great stuff. Yeah. And so I'll end with this at Connects FM, our mid-year, our tech-focused mid-year conference, October 9th through 11th at, at Schaumburg. You can still register last few days here at ConnectsFM.com. Check that out. Garrick will be there. The retail grind will be there. The daily grind will be there. And Garrick and Bill Yannick will be there. That's your retail grind for today. Really appreciate you joining us. Garrick, we'll see you soon. For audience out there, appreciate you joining us. Have a good one. <laughs>